0: morning. If you got your Bibles, will you open up with me to Luke chapter 15. Switched it up on you all. I know the newsletter said Ephesians. We're in Luke chapter 15 this morning, Luke chapter 15. It is a joy to be with you, and like Ben said, we are so thankful. If you're new with us, just thankful to be able to have you as our guest this morning. We're excited for the opportunity to have a meal afterwards and then be able to run Luke chapter 15 is our text this morning I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 I'm going to come back and then read the rest of Luke 15 uh, During the sermon But here God's word with me this morning Says this Luke writes Now the text collectors and sinners were all drawing near to to him Speaking of Jesus And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying This man receives sinners and eats with them So Jesus told them a parable What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. For what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses just one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It was Francine Rivers who wrote the best-selling story, Redeeming Love, who's written after the modern-day story of Hosea. In this story, she introduces us to the main character by a woman by the name of Angel. Its ironic name being her profession is somewhat strange. She, She writes it. It's kind of the story during the time of the gold rush in which men were were giving their livelihood for the chance of gold. And women were giving up their dignity for a chance to have a bed at night. Angel was that of the latter. She was a prostitute. A harlot. One who was low in community. One who was thought to be sinful, shameful. One that everybody despised. This is where the story gets good, because one man is called to look at her differently. This man by the name of Michael, this, this man of God, is called by God in this story to go pursue this prostitute named Angel to the point of pursuing her to marriage. As you're reading this, you're thinking, what? You're calling this, this godly, God-fearing man to, to marry a prostitute? This man could have anybody he ever desired, and yet God is calling him to pursue this one, this this, this, this woman named Angel. And what makes matters worse, Angel's not thankful for this pursuit. She, she's not thankful to be able to live on this nice farm and have a man who treats her right. No, she goes right back to the brothel. So Michael pursues her, brings her back, and then she goes right back to the brothel again. And as you're reading this, at this point, you're thinking, well, this is great. Michael can finally kind of move on, get a lady who, who treats him right, one who's deserving of his love. But, but that's not what Michael does. Michael pursues Angel over and over again, even at a cost, leaving his own home to find her in the city. And he embraces her with open arms. It's a moving story. Moving story about grace, love, and this endless pursuit. And why I like this book so much is Francine Rivers, she, she writes this book so that we could have this parable of, of God's pursuing love for us. And she writes kind of a modern day version of the story of Hosea which shows this God who pursues his people even when those people are unfaithful to him. And this is a story we see in Scripture The God who pursues his people, this endless pursuit. We see in the book of Judges, once Israel turns their back on God time and time again. And what does God do in his grace? He doesn't leave or or leave or abandon his people. No, he puts a judge over them, this, this, this type of savior to woo them back to himself. Again, we see it in the story of Hosea. Which redeeming love is written after. This story of God telling Hosea the prophet to, to go pursue this, this, this prostitute named Gomer. And even when she turns her back and leaves and goes back to this life of cheating upon Hosea. God turns to him in this time and says, Hosea, go pursue her again. We see it in the story of Jonah. God calls Jonah to, to go to Nineveh. And where does Jonah go? He goes in the exact opposite, to, to the opposite place. And this time you're thinking, maybe God will just give up, get a new messenger. But does he do that? No. He pursues Jonah. In this great act of grace, he pursues him to the bottom of the ocean and saves him through this fish. You see it through the disciple's life named Peter. Peter who who kind of turns on Jesus three separate times. God doesn't give up on Peter. Peter. But he pursues Peter, restoring him to be the father of the church. Friends, over and over again in Scripture, scriptures, we see this God who pursues his people. His people, even when they're unfaithful, we see this endless pursuit of a God. And we'll see it in our passage this morning. See it in the parable. Of a shepherd who, who goes, finds this one lost sheep. We'll, we'll see it in this woman who, who loses a coin and, and without the house within the house carefully and diligently. And we'll see it in the story of a parable of the lost son. In which the father is waiting for his son to return. This morning I want to talk to you on the topic of this God who pursues his people. As C.H. Spurgeon would say, he is the hound of heaven. The God who endlessly pursues his children because he loves us that much. But as we open up this passage, one of the things you'll see in this passage is it's, un- it's somewhat of an unfamiliar picture of Jesus to us. I don't mean the stories. We're very familiar with the stories. I mean the picture of Jesus in verse 1. For notice what it says. It's almost shocking in its nature. Luke writes in verse 1 that now that tax collectors and and sinners were were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. And as I read that verse in my mind's eye, I try to picture what Luke meant when he uses this word sinners. Does he really mean that there's a local prostitute hanging around Jesus in this time? That Jesus is dining with this lady? Does, Does it mean there's this businessman who was corrupt? Who most likely cheated out the the members of this town. Maybe even cheating out some of the family members. And and taking advantage of them. Is he hanging out and befriending this person? I don't know who exactly Luke means when he's speaking of this, this, this idea of the sinners and the tax collectors. But what I do know. Jesus is befriending. He's... He's having dining with these, these individuals who are the lowest of the low in society. They are the black sheep. They are the sinful individuals. And Jesus is befriending, showing grace to them and having a meal. And what's so interesting about that, we have to ask the question, why is this a shocking vision of, of who Jesus is? Why does it make us kind of almost turn our heads when we see Jesus dining with known sinners? I think the answer is very simple I think we have underestimated the extent of God's grace We're not alone in that As if we look throughout this passage Everybody is, is underestimating the extent of God's grace Specifically in the story of the parable of the lost son We'll see it with the, the, the younger son We'll see it with the Pharisees and the pastors themselves And we'll see it with the eldest son Everybody is underestimating God's grace Except the people in verse 1 That's shocking. It's the people who who thought we're supposed to be the farthest ones away from Jesus are the only ones who are understanding His grace in this moment. It's the sinful of society. The shameful, the ones whose society has kicked to the curb, those are the ones who are seeing the great Savior's grace. It's somehow behind their sin, they're seeing this God who, who loves them more than what they can ever imagine. And at the irony in the passage, the ones who were supposed to know God's love the most are actually the ones who are the farthest away. Here are the Pharisees, they, they prided themselves on being separate. In fact, this word Pharisee it really speaks to this idea, It really means to separate or divide. And that's exactly what they did. They had a system that separated and divided. Those who followed this law, this code, the the God's word, were the ones who were thought to be the closest to God, but those who didn't were supposed to be the ones who were unable to even come to God. Here Jesus in this story is is erasing this dividing line that they've created. Not only is he erasing this dividing line, he's flipping their system up on its head. So no wonder in verse 2, We see a group of individuals who are grumbling, who are complaining. These Pharisees, they're not getting it. They don't understand God's mission. And as they're complaining and getting upset, isn't it funny? They're missing what Jesus was doing. Jesus is doing what He's always done. He is pursuing the sinners, rejoicing when they turn to Him, and restoring them as His own children. In fact, again, we see this so clearly throughout this passage. Does we in verse three, notice what it says again in verse three with me? It says he told them this parable what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has he lost just one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost, until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine righteous people who are of no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses just one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents do you see the endless pursuit in these two parables do, do you see what he's getting at this this endless pursuit of our God who pursues his children and this is what again what God has been doing from the very beginning He chased after a racist named Jonah. He, He wrestles with this liar named Jacob. He intercedes the path of a murderer named Paul. Our God is a God who is pursuing the sinners. And he's been doing it since the very beginning of time. There's this in this pursuit. God steadfastly pursues the sinner. And we see it so clearly in this first passage. Jesus asked the question, which one of you, if you lost just one sheep, would not go out and pursue the one? And which one of you, if you had ten coins, you lost just one, would not sweep the house trying to to search for it? And what he's trying to get us to to, to ask the question is if this shepherd is willing to leave the 99 to find the one lost sheep, and if this woman is, is diligently searching her house when she has ten but just loses one, how much more? Will our God go and seek the lost of his creation? That's the question he wants us to ask. And yet we see this in this passage of who is the one who pursues in these stories? It's the shepherd who pursues the sheep. It's the woman who proceeds or, or, or kind of pursues this lost coin. It's the, it's the, the father. As we'll see in a little bit, he's the one who pursues his lost son. Each and every one of these are pursuing the lost, which clearly shows us a picture of Jesus pursuing his lost children. Jesus is the one who pursues. And what's so interesting in in all these stories, as we look throughout scripture, is many times when God was pursuing, these men and women were not looking or searching for God himself. In like fact, many times they're actually going the exact opposite direction, but our God still pursued And we see it again as we see the value of what these people are searching and what it means to them. The shepherd who, who leaves the 99 and he searches for this one lost sheep and catches it, what it says in the passage, until he finds it. Tells us this is not some haphazard kind of search. This, this is the this shepherd saying, I'm, I'm not coming back until I find this one lost sheep. In the same very story of this woman, we see her. She, she lights her lamp late at night. She gets on her knees. She begins to sweep. As the passage says, she searches carefully and diligently. And in these two parables, it shows us. The value of what they value this lost item to be. They're searching until they find it. They're searching carefully and diligently. And again, this is a picture of our God who goes and he pursues his children. Because again, the question we're asking, if these, this shepherd searches so diligently until he finds this sheep and, and this woman for just one tiny coin, what wasn't that much money, if they're doing it for that, how much more will our God search for His creation in this world. It's beyond comparison. That's Jesus' point in telling these two stories. It is beyond His comparison. He is a God who steadfastly searches for those who are lost of His creation. When we see this steadfast search within the Gospel, do we not? The story of Christmas is coming up and we see this Jesus who would come down to this earth that would empty Himself. Not considered equality something to be grasped, but He came down to pursue us and He pursued us to the point that it cost Him something upon the cross. That's how much He loves us. That He would give up heaven, the King of kings, and would give His everything So that we could be back into relationship with him. This is a God who pursues. And the craziest part of the gospel. Is he pursued us that while we were still the prodigal. I don't know if you're familiar with Romans 5.8. But it says this. That God demonstrated his love for us. That while, while, while we were still sinners. Christ came. While we are still stuck in our addiction, Christ came to die for us. While we were shacking up with who knows who, Christ came to die for us. That while, while, while we were still sinners, that's when God pursued us. And to think that if He didn't pursue us, we would still be stuck in our sin. to think that, that if He didn't pursue His children, that we would still be stuck in slavery and bondage. But how I'm thankful that we serve a God who pursued us to the point of the cross. I don't know about you. I got three children, and there's no way I'm giving up any of them for you. But our God had one, one son. And he said, Here he is for you, so that you can be reconciled back to him. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? In fact, it keeps getting better. Not only does he pursue his children, but what we see next is when they turn, he rejoices. He doesn't doesn't judge them. He doesn't discipline them. No, when they turn back to them in this passage, what do we see? We see joy. We see a party. We see celebration. In fact, I want to draw your attention again to verses 5 and 7. Notice what the shepherd does when he finds this lost sheep. Notice how many times we see in verses 5-7 through seven the word rejoice and joy. Because so when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders, catch it, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he, he calls his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found one sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance translation when you turn to jesus he rejoices he throws a party verse 9 what do we see this lady do when she finds the lost coin she calls her friends and her family members to once again rejoice they throw a party what's the purpose of these two stories again it tells us in verse 10 that when you and i are saved The angels celebrate, God throws a party, they sing, they rejoice, and there is no judgment. Is that not just an incredible story? And as you're looking at these two stories, you have to understand, these stories, they seem far-fetched, they don't make sense. What shepherd is going to find their sheep and then throw a party with their friends? Which one of us is going to lose a penny in our house and go on our hands and knees searching it? And then we find it, we call everybody together and throw a party. But that's exactly Jesus' point. How much more then will God rejoice over us and throw a party when one of his people comes in repentance to him? And yet if you think these two stories are crazy, now listen to the story of the lost son says this in verse 11 and he said there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father father forgive me the share of the property that is coming to me and he divided his property or he said father rather he said father give me father give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them not many days later the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living And when had spent everything, A severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields, a Jewish man, to feed pigs. When he was longing to be fed with pods and the pigs ate and, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger i will arise and go to the father and i will say to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son just treat me as one of your hired servants and catch the father's response in verse 20 and he arose and he came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed Now this older son was in the field and he came and he drew near the house and he heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He said, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young coat that I might celebrate with your friends. For when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, "Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and he is alive; he is lost and he is found." One of the things we have to understand in this story to make us understand the shocking nature is for this lost son to ask for his inheritance, as he does in the very first verses there, for him to ask for his inheritance is literally the cultural equivalent of asking for his father to be killed. For the inheritance would only be handed out after his father passed away. This is what Kenneth Bailey writes. He says, for over 15 years, have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India, from Turkey to Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while his father is living? The answer has always been emphatically the same. The conversation runs as follows. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Their answer, never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Their request means he wants his father to die. And with that understanding, I think it's very helpful because, again, it brings the shocking nature back to this text. Because I think we often forget what a scoundrel this younger son was. Here he is, he's asking for his inheritance, the cultural equivalence of asking his father to be dead. And then, when he gets his father's money, what does he do? He squanders it on wild living. And then, what does he do after that? Here this Jewish man hangs out with a bunch of pigs, which makes him ceremonial, unclean, an outcast, not able to worship his God. And even worse than that, now he's dependent on pigs' food to feed himself. He is the lowest of low. He's the most shameful individual that you could ever imagine. Which makes it all that more shocking. When we see in verse 20 the father's response. This son who literally asked for his father to be dead, squandered his money, hung out with a bunch of pigs, made him ceremonial, unclean. He comes back to the father, and what does the father respond with? It's not punishment. It's not judgment. It's not, what were you thinking, son? It wasn't even, did you learn your lesson? No, what we see in this passage is we see this embrace, rejoicing, and joy. Again, when somebody turns to the Father, they don't receive judgment through Jesus Christ. They receive an embrace, a celebration, adoption as their own child. Why wouldn't anybody want to turn to Jesus Christ? So often we are so scared of our sin, we look at our past. You can't get any lower than this individual. And yet, what does he receive when he turns in Repentance. He receives the father's embrace. That's crazy. He's asking for his father to be dead. In verse 20, the text says the father was not angry, but actually shows compassion. He shows empathy. And what we see is he's looking out at a far distance. He sees the son, which the implication there is the father has been searching for the son. And what does he do when he sees his son? He picks up his robe. He runs to his son. He embraces it. As the text says, he kisses his son. And it's in the present tense, which means he's kissing, kissing, kissing. It's a beautiful picture. And you know, what we need to understand is this is not Middle Eastern culture. A Middle Eastern father would not do this. Again, the father would... Would beat the child, the father would make the son beg, the father would make the son kiss his own feet, but that is not what we see in the passage. We see the exact opposite. We see the father embrace his his son. This sinful individual, he embraces and he kisses and he's so excited that he calls his servants and he says, It's time to throw a party. Go get the calf. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? Yes, this was us. This is our story. But when we turn back to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't receive judgment, but we're declared innocent. And what do we get? We get the Father some praise. We get the Father to to call us His own. So not only do we see this endless pursuit, not only do we see this celebration when the sinner turns back, but lastly what we see in this passage is we see the Son is restored. The full right within the family. It really is incredible. Verse 21 to 22. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly, catch it the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. You almost see the desperation in verse 21. The, father, the, the son is saying, I am not even worthy to be called your servant father. Treat me as one of your servants. I'm not your son anymore. And what does the father do in this this instance? He says, you're not going to be my servant. No, he calls the son to himself. He calls his servant, go get the rope. go get the ring, go get the shoes, go kill the the calf. In essence, what he's doing in this moment... Many scholars believe that the, the, the father in this moment is, is taking off his own robe, the best robe that he had, and he's clothing his son as a sign that he's been adopted fully back into the family. This ring was a segment of his, of his, his, of his, his authority as a son. Again, he puts the ring back on him in full authority, back his sonship. Putting the shoes on himself. Under that day and age, the way you'd be able to tell those who were servants from those who were part of the family was whether if they were barefoot or whether if they had shoes. In essence, what the father is saying is there's no way you are going to be my hired servant. Get the shoes. You are my son. You are my, my, my son. What a beautiful picture of him adopting him back fully into his family. He says, and he gathers his people, he says, this is the time to celebrate. What a joyous picture. In fact, this is the story of the gospel. This is our story. The son goes from the lowest of lows, in an instant he's transformed to the highest of highs. Do you see that picture? The inheritance, the adoption, all of it is now fully back, in it's it's his. That's why Tim Keller looks at this story and he says this story shouldn't be called the prodigal son. It should be called the story of the prodigal God. Prodigal means that you're recklessly spending your resources, and this is this not what the father is doing in this passage? Recklessly spending of his love, recklessly spending of his grace to adopt this son back into the family of God. One writer writes this God's gifts are always most generous. He is forever adding gift to gift, favor to favor, blessing to blessing. He gives not only of his riches, as a billionaire might do when he gives a dollar to charity, but according to his riches, the riches of his grace. He imparts grace upon grace. He delights in loving kindness. When when he loves the world, he gives, and he gives his only begotten son. He not only pardons the sinner as a governor might, might grant pardon, but in addition, adopts him and grants him peace, holiness, joy, assurance, freedom of access. Truly, when God giveth, he giveth, he giveth, and he giveth again. This is the story of the gospel. This is why we gather as the saints. Because we get to taste what heaven is all about in this place as we as put our faith in Jesus Christ, now become the family of God. And maybe you're in this room and and maybe you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, but the great news is you can do it simply by turning back to Him, repenting of your sin and saying, I want you to be my Savior. And the great news of the gospel is He adopts us as His own child. So why do we gather here this morning? And gather to run, yes, a 5K for adoption. Because what we want to do in this place is we want to create a culture of adoption and foster care. What we want to do in this place is we want to create a culture of those who pursue the orphan. Why? Because the gospel implores us to. why, Why are we able to have empathy and compassion for the orphan? Because we were once orphans ourselves. But God adopted us into the family. And there's implications now being a part of the family of God. He says, I, I want you to have my heart. You're going to be my, fa- my, my part of my family. I'm going to be your father. I want you to have the father's heart. And what is the father's heart? It's to care for the most vulnerable in our society. And so interesting is if you just open up this book, you're going to find 2,350 different verses. And God's heart for the most vulnerable. For the widow, for the orphan, for the alien. 2,350 verses. Just to put that into perspective, that's 7.5% of Scripture. is talking about God's heart for the most vulnerable in society. So, so when we come to James one twenty-seven, it's not out of left field. James twenty twenty-seven, it says, this, this is religion, this is pure religion. To visit the orphan and to care for the widow in their need. What James is doing is he's just simply repeating what the Old and the New Testament says. God has a heart for the most vulnerable in our society, and he says, "I want you to go do what I've done for you." Pursue. In fact, that word there in James 1.27, when it says, "Go visit the orphan and the widow in their need," that word "visit" it, 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 it brings so much with it within the Greek. The word visit really speaks to this idea of people showing up with helpful intent. The word really speaks to this idea of exercising oversight and care for those you're visiting. In fact, what's so interesting about that word visit, it's the same word of use of Jesus back in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, speaking of him. It said God of Israel, speaking of him coming down. God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. And when Jesus visited his people, he didn't just say, how'd he do? No, he came to pursue, to care for, to, to take our kind of care under his supervision. And he adopts us as our own. So what God is calling us to do is the same thing he's done for us. How do we show the Father's heart to the world? It's through his church. So what are we called to do? We're called to pursue. To pursue the orphan. To care for the orphan. To take responsibility of their well-being. Giving ourselves fully to them. Even when it comes at a cost. Because this is what God has done for us. So if you're in this room. We thank you. We're thankful that you have come along this mission. We're thankful that you have, have shown the the world, God's heart, that you have been so generous with your finances, that you are moving mountains on behalf of those seeking for adoption. So we say thank you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for for being able to, to move mountains on behalf of a child and a family that gets to unite and show the world a picture of the gospel. I'm going to pray, but I want to end with a prayer specifically for the orphan in this world and those who are seeking adoption as well and those who are are giving themselves to foster care. Would you bow your heads as we kind of close in psalm as well? God, we're thankful. God, we're amazed by your word that you have a God who pursues. And God, we, we, we call on behalf of the orphan in this world that today would be the day that they would be able to feel a God who is the God of all compassion. In the midst of a broken world, we understand there's brokenness in all of our stories, but you are a God who redeems that brokenness. So, God, would you redeem the stories of those orphans and restore them? Let them see through this, through this, this, this fainted picture. Of parents who love them, pursue them, adopt them as their own. Would they see a God who has done the same thing on their behalf? God, let them find their identity. Let them come to saving faith. through God, in this place we pray that you would continually raise up people of great faith. That they would step out in faith. Seek adoption. Seek foster care. We're, we're thankful for the, so many who have done that in this place. God, we do this simply because this is your heart and you have transformed us. So God, continually transforming your people for your ends, your purposes, your glory. God, bless your people this morning. We pray these things in your son's precious name.